What are people really talking about when they talk about their constitutional rights? Most people think these rights protect their most precious individual freedoms, such as freedom to speak their mind or worship as they please. But Ash Bogwat, a professor at the UC Hastings College of the Law, thinks that this is entirely wrong. In his new book, The Myth of Rights, he argues that instead of focusing on individual liberty, constitutional rights were designed primarily, if not exclusively, to limit the power of government. I asked Professor Bogwat why this distinction is so important. Several reasons. I think it's actually important simply because I think right to dialogue in this country often is extraordinarily unproductive. People think the Constitution is all about them, and it sort of becomes a me culture. And the Constitution isn't like that, right? I mean, people try to write sort of self-centeredness into the Constitution in some ways, and that's, I think that's inherently destructive. More practically, it's important because reframing the debate often lets one understand why the Constitution does certain things in ways that I think are very helpful. I'll give you an example. Flag burners, right? I mean, there's Mm -hmm. First Amendment speakers who are extraordinarily unpopular. Like, most people in this country do not have any patience for flag burners. I'll be honest, I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason is, they make the very reasonable point, well, these guys, you know, we let them protest whatever they want, right? If someone, in the case of sort of the original flag burner in Texas versus Johnson, he was protesting American policies in in Central America. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, go ahead and do that, right? But why do you need to burn the flag? You know, what, why is that an important right for you to have? Mm-hmm. That's a hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. If you ask the question the way I would ask it, which is not to say, why does this guy need to burn a flag, but to say, do we trust the government to decide how people may and may not protest against the government? That's a very different question with some very different answers, right? Because there, I think the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And so the reason we trust flag burners is not because we're especially sympathetic to flag burners, but because we don't trust the government with this power. Well, the irony of that is, in, is that once the Supreme Court said it was okay to burn flags, people stopped burning flags. That is true. That's that, that is absolutely maybe, true. Which maybe was the, the goal all along, if, you know, if these guys are as smart as they say they are. <laughs> maybe. I'm not. I, that may be a little too Machiavellian. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to this idea of, of mythology... And, and, and where did this mythology begin? Uh, anyway, the people who f- fought and died and suffered uh, to win the uh, Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. did they, I mean, there wasn't a constitution in place when they fought. No. And what they did have was, there, w- there was the Declaration of Independence, yes. was, which was based on natural rights, yes. which was about individual entitlements. Weren't they fighting for these rights that you say under our system are, 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 are myths? Yes. So They believed in natural rights. And that was part of our sort of right. self-definition from the beginning, though it played a less important role in the first century of this country. It really started to become especially important during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, sort of social Darwinism and as part of the the right, you know, property rights and kind of libertarianism and laissez-faire is when they become really important. From the perspective of the original framers, those natural rights are very complicated because they believed in them as an abstract concept. Anyway. And they believed that the function of government was to, to ensure that people sort of remained as free as possible. But that's not what they envisioned as the role of the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. The role of the Bill of Rights is a much more na- narrow one. Does your analysis in any way shed light on why, relative to other countries, it took so long for us to recognize the civil rights of blacks or to give women the vote or to recognize gay marriage? Now, there are six European countries that recognize gay marriage. Or does it shed any light on the fact that, on why uh, it took until 1988 for us to stop uh, executing children under the age of 16. Right. It wasn't until uh, 2002 that we stopped executing retarded people. Does your analysis shed any light at all on any of that? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I don't want to claim too much, right? I think a lot of those differences reflect very different factors, which mm-hmm. is a lot of it simply reflects the fact that this is a much, much more, cons- more religious country and as a consequence more conservative and more traditionalist sense than 
any European country, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, even, you know, traditionally Catholic countries like um, Italy or France. And that um, religiosity explains how backward we were on civil rights? On some issues. Civil rights, no. I don't think religiosity explains... Um, Although there the, was a religious argument that, you know, God meant for blacks to be slaves, right? <laughs> sure, but, but it's important to remember that on the abolitionist side, religious leaders yeah. also played an incredibly yeah. important role. They were all so, I mean, praying to the same God. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. See, theoretically, it was all same denominations, in fact. You right. know, I mean, Southern Baptists versus Northern Baptists, same with Methodists. Um, yeah. But here's the thing about... In some ways, I think that the institution of slavery from the perspective of Southerners was consistent with this suspicious view of the central government, was is that they viewed, you know, I mean, this is not a defense, right? They had this incredibly racist worldview, and they also viewed slavery as one of these entitlements that you can't trust the government with, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that, so that the national government is explicitly disempowered in, in, in particular parts of the Constitution to deal with slavery, right? There's the clause saying that you can't ban slave trade for 20 years, mm -hmm. and, this, and it's explicitly not authorized to regulate slavery. Nowhere is it granted the power to regulate slavery. And all of that is mixed, you know, this distrust of the national government is very much mixed in, mixed in with defenses of slavery. This is that it was seen as being our local institutions, our issue. Mm -hmm. um, which is why the Civil War was so important, because um, it was important for many reasons. But one of the legal outcomes of the Civil War was to really turn over the relationship between national and um, state governments. That mm -hmm. Southerners, in particular, really distrusted federal government and tended to put their faith in state governments. Mm -hmm. You know, when Thomas Jefferson, who was in this respect a Southerner, even though he had a complicated relationship with slavery, when he was elected president, he radically reduced the size of the federal government compared to what had been built up under Washington and Adams. It's mm -hmm. all part of the same phenomenon. So this attitude that we had toward slavery, did that in any way infect the way we viewed rights in general? I mean, you, you, you described it as a, you know, uh, a, a distinction between state versus federal power and right. the balance between the two. Uh, but in terms of the ripple effect, uh, and again, going to, looking at some of these other issues, yeah. whether it's you know, women or gay, I mean, do we come out of the starting gate with something that perhaps uh, protects rights uh, less robustly than uh, the constitutions of other countries? Oh, I don't, I'm not sure that's fair. I mean, the important thing to remember is, is, is that in 1789, other countries didn't have constitutions, right? right. I mean, this, ours is still the oldest extant written constitution. Yeah. Um, so nobody was protecting rights at that point. Um, and, you know, the Although Britain, Great Britain, uh, they were able to get rid of slavery in 1833 without any fight at all. Sure, but at least part of the reason for that is economic, which is, is that in Britain itself, slavery was not an important part of the economic infrastructure. Even the for the empire? Itself. For the empire, it was more complicated. But, but the empire was, it was abolished throughout the entire empire right. in 1833. But again, I mean, slavery was not a major institution in India, which was, you know, mm -hmm. the most important possession. Um, it, there was, the issue was in the Caribbean colonies. And there, yes, the British, I mean, they, they were a, a step ahead of us. There's no question. Mm -hmm. um, it is possible that, I mean, yeah, you know, again, I don't want to attribute everything to this, but it is certainly true that the choice to create a relatively weak central government that was made in the Constitution and that was sort of accentuated with the Bill of Rights um, raised, you know, made it much more difficult for the United States to eliminate slavery because it became a sectional issue and the national government was not empowered to eliminate slavery. Indeed, in Dred Scott, which is an outrageous decision, but in Dred Scott, the Supreme Court interpreted the Constitution to not only not permit the national government, but to forbid the national government mm -hmm. from interfering with slavery. You write in your book, uh, 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 this is a quote, a broad, untethered jurisprudence of natural rights certainly does protect individuals from government excess, but it does so at a severe cost to democracy. Uh, when I read that, it occurred to me that that was a, a great argument against just the whole concept of judicial review. Well, um, it's an argument against judicial review of the sort that I think occasionally the Supreme Court has fallen prey to, which is judicial review that's untethered from structural considerations, 
And instead, it involves the nine justices trying to kind of, you know, in their own minds, decide what is the proper balance between liberty and um, individual autonomy in a society. And individual, rather, between individual autonomy and governmental power and sort of efficient government efficiency. And I think that project is hopeless for the Supreme Court to try and accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, that's the question that you're going to vary on, you know, over years in situations. Different people are going to have different views. And it doesn't seem to me that, it's, that, a, that a clear sort of answer is possible. And more fundamentally, for all that I think judicial review is an essential aspect of our system of government, I'm not sure how judges are supposed to draw that balance. And how do you, how do you decide in a particular instance, right, is this person's right to be free of surveillance more important than the government's interest in you know, catching terrorists? How do you, how do, you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't, I don't know. Um, I, think what you, I don't think that's a useful question to ask. What about like what the Supreme Court did with respect to the detainee cases, mm-hmm. saying that the Bush administration couldn't just uh, deny these people habeas corpus rights and that these commissions needed to meet a higher standard? Yeah. Again, you know, to use your paradigm, we're talking about what government shouldn't be allowed to do. Yeah, absolutely. W- weren't those, were those appropriate decisions? The decision about the tribunals is justifiable because the basis that the Bush administration lost was is the Supreme Court said, all we're, we're not even saying you can't have these tribunals. All we're saying is you've got to comply with congressional law. And in this case, you are not complying with the Uniform Code of Military Justice, balance of powers again. Right? It's pure separation of powers decision. The Guantanamo habeas decision, I think, was incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the result. Don't approve of Guantanamo. But um, I, don't, I think the Constitution is about the balance of powers between the American people and I'll extend it to people who are resident in the United States who are non-citizens, especially who are on path to citizenship, and their government. People at Guantanamo, they're not part of the people. They're just not, right? If they, were US, if they was a U.S. citizen, it'd be a different matter, but the Bush executive order explicitly limits military tribunals to non-citizens. Non-citizens are not being held at Guantanamo. They're foreign nationals, you know, as a matter of public policy and as a matter of common sense and, and diplomacy, I think we should treat them decently. But I don't think it raises those the, the constitutional concerns. And, I, and habeas is about protecting the people. But wasn't the there government. this legal fiction that was maintained that Guantanamo was outside the United States? Right. Well, it is outside the United States. It, uh. <laughs> it's in Cuba, right? I mean, it's admittedly we have complete control over it. Yeah. yeah. But, well, but, that's a, that's a big concession, right? I mean, it, it, I mean, they chose Guantanamo. They chose Guantanamo to try and create reason. a legal black hole. It was just like legal, yeah, this legal, legal yeah. black hole, as you Absolutely. say. Absolutely, and I don't like it, like yeah. I said, but I just don't think it's a constitutional concern. I think yeah. that, you know, it's not what the Bill of Rights is about. How much better off are we with judicial uh, review? I mean, there are countries, democracies, mm-hmm. who have much softer versions of judicial review. There's... Britain, Canada, the Netherlands, Ireland, they don't have a court that no. has that absolute veto power. Are, are we so much better off with this, with the Supreme Court having this kind of power? I mean, what, would we have had a worse country without it? Uh, yes. We would have. Yes. Um, I think lack of judicial review of congressional statutes would not have been the end of the world. Um, this is actually, I, this is not me, my idea. Justice Holmes made this comment a century ago mm-hmm. that Congress has enough institutional checks on it that occasionally it steps out of bounds. Mm-hmm. But often when it steps out of bounds, the Supreme Court doesn't do much about it. I mean, because it, it's at times like during the Japanese-American internment when the court doesn't have the guts to step up to Congress. Um, the problem is the states. Before the Civil War, judicial review was not an important institution, right? Before the Civil War, exactly two federal statutes were struck down by the Supreme Court. One was in Marbury versus Madison, a trivial jurisdictional provision about the courts, and the other was in Dred Scott, the Missouri Compromise, on really heinous grounds. It's not important. I mean, so far as it was important yeah. in Dred Scott, it was a mistake. Right. States more so, but again, fairly peripheral. Once the Civil War was fought, once constitutional limits were placed on the states, and once the problem of protecting African Americans from state governments became a major factor, I think yeah, this country would be a much worse place without But the Supreme review. Court performed poorly. Until 1954, it's true. They did, and they, then, you know, in, in terms of the first 
time that the Supreme Court sustained way uh, applied judicial review was during the Lochner period. Another, right. di- another disaster. Yes, uh, absolutely. I, you know, when all is said and done, you look at the total picture. I mean, how much, you know, how better off are we? You know what? It's an interesting question. I mean, there's been a lot of literature recently. Um, I mean, Larry Jeremy was, Waldron hates judicial review. Yeah. He called it a, a deviant institution in American yeah, democracy. Mark Tushnet has argued against it. Yeah. Larry Kramer has argued against it. No, I mean, there's a major movement right now bo- on both sides of the aisle that are yeah. questioning it. First of all, let's be real. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Right? Right. Judicial review is with us to stay. It's been here for 200 years. It's not going anywhere. Right. You know, it's, a, it's really hard to do counterfactuals. First half of the 20th century, Supreme Court, by and large, did a fairly poor job, really quite, not even fairly, a pretty atrociously poor job uh, in most areas. Not inevitably, it had moments. Um, it, you know, 1920s, cases like the Scottsboro Boys case, they were willing to step in and actually put some constraints on southern governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some desegregation decisions during the 30s. But it was really after World War II that the court start, started to come into its own. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the court's influence in just influence in triggering the civil rights movement cannot be underestimated, right? I mean, Brown versus Board was important. Mm-hmm. May not have been the court itself couldn't do it, but I'm not sure the civil rights movement happens in quite the same way without the unanimous backing of the Supreme Court. I think that free speech court again did poorly during World War One, did poorly during the McCarthy era, but eventually got around to sort of providing robust protection. I don't know how the Vietnam War protests happen without robust yeah. judicially enforced First Amendment. Jerry Mo- Jeremy Waldron makes the argument that, you know, with judicial, I mean, we talk about these moral questions, the mm-hmm. fundamental moral questions that we really need to grapple with. And what the Supreme Court does is that it, it basically allows us as a country to avoid those moral questions. You know, we get involved in these legalistic arguments that really I, are you know, uh, divorced really from the issues that we need to come to terms with. Other countries seem to do it right. uh, pretty well. Why can't we? Oh, I agree with, on that That critique I agree with. Um, I think in some ways, if you think about it, that's what my book is about. Uh-huh. My book is about these, more, these sort of abstract arguments about individual liberty and what that means. Does it include a right to an abortion? Does it include a right but, to I mean, you, you mentioned Board v. B- uh, Brown v. Board of Education. Mm-hmm. I mean, could we, ha- would we have not been able to uh, you know, right that wrong without the Supreme Court? I don't know. It is possible that eventually a sufficiently strong coalition would have emerged in the North and the West to f- combat the South. Yeah. Um, it would have taken a lot longer, I have no doubt about it. Yeah. And here's the thing. If you believe that, this, that the Constitution is about distrust of the government, as I do, and if you believe that one of the sort of insights of the Civil War era is, is that this distrust needs to be extended from the federal government to state governments, which I believe. Um, then one realizes that we d- can't trust the substance. I mean, how you phrase the question as, can we trust Southern governments to do a decent job figuring out the c- morally correct answer to racial issues? The answer is no, mm-hmm. right? Not mm-hmm. only no, absolutely hell no, because we know. We saw for a century the way they behaved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was no... That empirical question had been answered by 1954, which is is that they weren't capable Mm -hmm. of actually growing up, right? And so you needed some institution to step in. And this is where judicial review can play a role, is is it can say there are certain structural limits on government. And one of those limits written into equal protection clauses, systematic oppression of one group of citizens by another over a substantial period of time is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It, it's inconsistent with a, demo, with a democratic ideal. And that when democracy is broken, as it was in the South, since most African Americans were disenfranchised, saying let's look to democracy is, I think, a non-answer. On the other hand, something like abortion, Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. much harder. Mm-hmm. Because it's not clear that democracy was broken in dealing with abortion. It's just Again, I guess I come back to the question, though, why do we need a Supreme Court to, to step in when other countries seem to have as good, if not better, human rights records without it? Um, and what, 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 think, what's, the, what's the difference? I think part of it is the legacy of slavery in this country mm-hmm. um, is, is, is critically important. Um, that really... 
first of all, I'm not sure I fully agree with your premise because it may be true that in the post-World War II era, yeah. You know, European democracies have actually grown. I assume that's what you're thinking of. Yes. You look around the no, world, and right. most of the world doesn't right. look so great. Right. Um, but European democracies have kind of matured to the point where, you know, they now have signed treaties and they're protecting human rights. Um, but that's a very recent phenomenon, right? I mean, mm-hmm. for God's sakes, I mean, Germany had Hitler. Yes, yes, I mean, it's yes. Not, you know, of course. Um, and you know, Italy had Mussolini. And yeah. sort of, it's not. And France also had Pétain. I mean, people don't like to talk about it, right. but, you know, so England has done a better job for cultural reasons. And I think that that is true, that I think the legacy of slavery in this country and how deeply entrenched it was created a greater need for judicial review. But I think that, you know, it's people underestimate the degree to which we actually, because historically I think we have done better on civil liberties most of the time. Yeah. Well, I wonder to what extent the Europeans now have an advantage because most of their constitutions were written after World War II. Right. We have an antique constitution. Yes, we do. And I wonder whether that is uh, you know, an advantage or a disadvantage. Thomas Jefferson, in a famous letter to Madison, worried about uh, having a constitution that would affect the lives of people hundreds of years after they were dead. He, you know, he made the famous uh, observation that the earth is, belongs to the living. Right. And he actually suggested the idea that maybe the Constitution should uh, die a natural death every 19 years. One generation. Every generation. Uh, so, I, you know, de Tocqueville made the point that one of the advantages that this country had at the start was that we didn't have the baggage right. that the Europeans had. Now we don't have that advantage anymore, and we have an antique Constitution. Is that... A disadvantage, as, as mu- at least as much as an advantage. I mean, the Constitution is revered. Yeah, but it, oh, it is in some ways. It's a an old, old Constitution. Absolutely, and some provisions in it are simply indefensible, and you know, not the things many most people think about. Structure of the Senate is mm-hmm. indefensible. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that that Wyoming and California each have two senators is absurd. Mm-hmm. It's, it's anti-democratic. It makes no sense in the modern era. Yes, that's a disadvantage. I think. I would say this, though, which is, is that my vision of the Constitution, which is, is that the Constitution, by and large, does not try and make moral judgments. That, by and large, what the Constitution does is to try and set up structures under which popular sovereignty remains in place and remains the fundamental basis of our government, and that elected officials are prevented from misusing their power, but that with that balance, by and large, we empower government to do what it wants in most areas. If you see the Constitution as primarily structural, then it's much less harmful because our structures are by and large pretty good, the two big exceptions being the Electoral College and the Senate. But otherwise, you know, it's all right. Um, And so if, again, I mean, Jeremy Waldron is right, right? Insofar as we we judicialize all these basic moral decisions, I think it's really quite bad Mm -hmm. for um, democracy. So on that count, Europeans are worse than us in some ways because they don't just constitutionalize them, they treatify them, right? They make them into treaties that are the European Convention on Human Rights, the EU Treaty, and um, completely outside of the control of, of people. So insofar and, and as... And those are, are bad things? Well, they are if you believe in democracy, right? If you believe but that, what if you that, believe in human rights? That's the question. <laughs> um, the question is, do we believe in human rights, and how do we decide what human rights we believe in? Mm-hmm. which is the harder question, right? Sure, right. we believe in human rights, but I want you to think about the current debate that's going on um, about religious rights. And there's this movement, especially by Islamic countries, to try and consider and recognize defamation of religion as a human rights violation. You know, I mean, so that, you know, the Muhammad cartoons and things like that. That's, I mean, from my perspective and from the American perspective, that's exactly gone backwards, right? Mm-hmm. But it turns out that it's not so easy to know what human rights are. In that context, I would rather leave it to the democratic process when, in case of doubt, right? On the other hand, when you're talking about oppressing minorities, um, I think that's inconsistent with democracy, and so you can't do it. And so for take the French proposal and the sort of European Belgians have already done it, the, plan, the proposal to ban the burqa. Right? Mm-hmm. It's outrageous from my perspective. Because regardless, you know, they see it, they're arguing this is a pro human rights thing because it's protecting women, you know. And do I approve of the burqa? No, I don't. But to single out the religious garb of one minority religion, right, 
and sort of attack it is to my mind highly problematic. It's likely to lead to sort of social divisions. It's likely to lead to European Muslims who already feel alienated. Well, I mean, there are some sects that believe that their women should have clitorectomies. Right. Um, should we respect that? Should our constitution respect that? No. I mean, there, well, what's there, the difference? The difference is that, that first of all, it's about children, right? I mean, and I think that we that the, the state has a much more important role to play in protecting children than in protecting adults. We allow people to tattoo themselves, right? We allow people to sort of, you know, do all sorts of piercings. Right. We, don't, we don't stop them from engaging in what many people would consider physical self-mutilation. But clitorectomy is, in sort of, is about about. But I mean, you're talking about the burqa, the full, mm -hmm. full-fledged burqa. Mm -hmm. We're talking about women who are not necessarily agreeing to this. It's just that the, the culture that they're in well, you, mandates know, that. But we don't know that they don't agree to it. Right? Well, and could if the same question be asked of clitorectomies if, say, they were older when they had them done? But with adults, it's more complicated, mm -hmm. right? I mean, mm -hmm. I don't. The, 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 the thing that's that's really really troublesome about clitorectomies is, is that it's it's involuntarily yeah. imposed on children. Yeah, um, like circumcisions. Right. Well, like circumcisions. Now you're hitting close to home here, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but circumcision. <laughs> and I had just, nothing to say about it. It happened. Uh, I terrible. I, I still have terrible memories about that. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, sir, I mean, circumcisions are today justified on medical grounds, right? I mean, uh, not really. Well, and it's not a topic I know a whole lot about. Right. Um, you know, I mean, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe. I mean, what is certainly true is circumcisions do not cause any long-term damage to it. To if done properly. If done properly, <laughs> yes. But um, unlike clitorectomies. So yeah. maybe that's the distinction. Yeah. But, you know, I, that's... Marianne Glendon wrote a book that you probably have rights talk, and in that book she laments how our legal rights talk uh, there, there is conspicuously missing in that talk uh, talk about obligation about responsibility. Right. She writes buried deep in our rights dialect is an unexpressed premise that we roam at large in a land of strangers where we presumptively have no obligation toward others except to avoid active infliction of harm. And in that context, she mentions the Good Samaritan cases. Yeah. You know, you have a case where an Olympic swimmer is standing by a pool watching a child drown. Yeah. And the child drowns. There's no recourse against the Olympic swimmer under our system of laws. Yeah. In Europe, it would, be, it would be different. I mean, and, and I think, you know, a, a case that you mentioned that is tangentially connected to that is the 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 Shaney case. Mm -hmm. This is a situation where a child was being abused. A social worker. It was a very egregious situation. Yes. A social worker had visited the house five times. Yeah. It was clear there was abuse. The uh, the authorities did nothing. The, the child ended up being brain damaged. Again, there was a, a, a lawsuit, and I, I believe the Supreme Court ruled that the that the authorities could not be held liable. Yeah. Uh, that's our system. Yep. Is that uh, a strength or a weakness? Should we be proud of the way that this system is working or ashamed? Um, I'm not ashamed. Um, and here's why. This is that we, again, I think there's a common story here, which is, is that, you know, rights talk is about collective Right? It's sort of trying to see, have a more collective sort of, it's not socialist, it's, um, it's, there's a word I'm looking for, but it's sort of a, a, not an individualistic, but a more collective vision of society. And I, I'm fully sympathetic with that. The question that's hard is, is the law the best mechanism to enforce those views, right? Nobody questions that that social worker should have done a better job in the Deshaney case, right? And ideally, someone's going to, you know, there's going to be political consequences, someone's going to shake up that department. But doesn't the rest of society take its cue from the law? Well, that's the question, is to what extent is that true and should it be true, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where the real division, to my mind, between European systems and ours is, yes. is, is that we tend to look less to legal institutions. We are less trusting of legal institutions. We're less trusting of the government. So we tend to look more to private institutions. For example, charitable care, right? Europeans have this huge welfare state. Americans give much more to charity and spend much more time doing volunteer service. Mm -hmm. Should we feel bad about that? A lot of people on the political left do feel bad about that. I think the government should do more, but I'm not sure that the European um, preference for state 
sort of involvement in <coughs> relying on governmental institutions and the law is a morally superior one at all. It may in the real world be the only realistic one. The charity just may not be enough, right? Uh -huh. There are certainly areas in which that's true. But, um, and we, we have welfare now, after all. But I, that's a very pragmatic choice to me, right? And the reality is, is we're always going to, because of our historical distrust of government, we're always going to rely less on government than the Europeans do. Um, you know, we're not the French. We've never had yeah. the tatsé moi. Yeah. Um, but all of that said, you're going back to the Olympic swimmer mm -hmm. who's watching the child, mm -hmm. and we're talking about a child here, mm -hmm. uh, uh, drowning. Mm -hmm. the, you, know, uh, you know, apart from the structural arguments that may be made, it just seems fundamentally wrong. It is fundamentally wrong. And in our system, there's no recourse against that wrong. There's no legal recourse. Right. 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 There's and no legal recourse. that's, you know... Again, I ask the question, is that a good thing? I, um, my problem, I, I, whether, you know, the, the, I'm, your example is a hard one. But let me give you at least the argument for why Good Samaritan laws are also problematic. Mm -hmm. Which is just that you've got an Olympic swimmer and a child. But... You're not going to write a law that says Olympic swimmers must rescue children, right? You're going to write a law that says, if you reasonably can, without danger to yourself, you must. Now, what if it's me, a fairly mediocre swimmer and a child? So that if I go and rescue, rescue that person, there's some reasonable chance that I'm going to be pulled out under with them. Can I be prosecuted? Well, I think that it comes down to the level of callousness, right? How do you judge that? Well, who, and who judges that? Yeah, well, intent and, uh, and, well, in and state of mind, is that's something that's, that's assessed every day in our courts, right? True, but, yeah, but, but callousness isn't a state of mind. Callousness is a moral judgment, right? It's a moral judgment about... I mean, well, it, malicious intent, is that a moral judgment? Malicious intent means intent to do harm. But let's, not, let's assume the Olympic swimmer didn't push this kid into the but pool, it, right? There's an intent there if there's the capability. To, I mean, there's, by omission and by commission, is one morally more reprehensible than the other? Yeah. Well, commission is, I think, morally more reprehensible, yes, generally. Really? Um, not... Always, but generally, sure, one is more responsible for one's actions than one is responsible for the state of the world. Mm -hmm. um, now, here's the reality again. How many Olympic swimmers aren't going to rescue that child? I mean, does it really happen? Mm -hmm. right? I mean, one of the questions I think it's worth before, this is, of course, extreme hypotheticals is the, is the gist of law professors, right? It's yeah. what we do. But there's a danger in it. And one of the dangers I think is, this conversation's illustrating is, is, is that it creates very, very unrealistic scenarios. You're saying we need a law. I guess one thing I would just ask is, is there really a problem out there that needs a law? Mm -hmm. Or is it just a made-up problem, right? Well, Don't I think, people yeah. actually risk themselves all the time to rescue others? Don't, mm -hmm. in fact, people die trying to rescue others all the time? Mm -hmm. Do we have any reason to think that we are such a callous society that we watch children drown and don't care? I don't think so. Well, I mean, when we talk about responsibility and irresponsibility, I mean, presumably most people in the society are responsible, right. just as most people aren't criminals. I mean, isn't, the, isn't it the function of law to, on some level, deal with the outliers? Yes, but any time you create a system, I mean, this is, this is the American perspective, yeah. which is, is that any time you create a system of law, you create social costs. You create enforcement costs, you create uncertainty, you create some situations where the law is going to be enforced unjustly. Therefore, to my mind, the burden of, and I think the Constitution confirms this, the burden of proof is on someone who wants a law, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it be financial reform or Good Samaritan laws. And so I got to be convinced that there's a really significant problem out there before, you know, like the reason we have murder well, laws is because people do commit murders. Right. Well, the DeShaney case, which you described, right. situation where clear abuse, right. the Supreme Court rules that the, uh, the, the, the county authorities have no uh, liability. Right. It seems wrong to me, apart from the legal theory, it just seems fundamentally wrong. You disagree. Uh, well, here's the thing there, is that what the Supreme Court said is there's no constitutional liability, right? Whether under state law, negligent government officials should make the government liable is a very different matter. And I actually think the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to make the government accountable in as many ways as possible, and one of those ways is tort liability for negligence. But mm -hmm. to constitutionalize that is a different matter. 
Well, we, we talked about the, the, the Olympic swimmer uh, situation, the, mm -hmm. the Cheney situation. I just wonder, you're a, a, someone who studies legal theory, mm -hmm. and it seems to me every so often legal theory leads you to a result that, uh, you know, while it can be justified, seems in a very uh, profound sense to be wrong, very fundamental sense to be wrong. I mean, I, I, I'll give you another example. Uh, uh, this was a, a pronouncement by uh, Justice Scalia, mm -hmm. where he said at one point that uh, factual innocence mm -hmm. may not necessarily be a good enough reason mm -hmm. to stop an execution. Right. Uh, you know, it's like you know, we we ordered the bean dip, and uh, you know, for the post-execution party. So even though we know you're innocent, we've got to execute you. I'm sure that Scalia, being the smart guy that he is, has a, has a way to justify that. Sure. But it seems to me so fundamentally wrong. <laughs> and I'm wondering whether that suggests a, a problem in legal theory that needs to be worried about when, when, when you get to those results that on a, on a fundamental level seem so morally indefensible. It's a problem. Um, and of course, Justice Scalia's views on that particular issue are not necessarily held by the rest of the court. Mm -hmm. um, but here's my defense, is, is that people's moral instincts are problematic um, as, as a basis for deciding what the law is for two separate reasons. One is moral instincts are often unconsidered. Um, so that, you know, there's, um, Martha Nussbaum has talked about this, is that people sort of feel revulsion about something. You know, and, and during the Bush administration, his science advisor was saying, well, that's, we should think about that. People feel revulsion about human cloning. That tells us that you know, we shouldn't. 1965, most Americans felt revulsion about interracial marriage. Right? Now, lots of Americans feel revulsion about same-sex marriage. That tells me nothing useful. Um, you know, so it's, I am extremely suspicious because people have felt moral revulsions about all sorts of things over history. The other is, even when the moral instinct is more... Um, Reliable. Sort of clear and widely shared, yeah. such as you know we shouldn't execute fa innocent people. I right. think that seems most pretty, of us would agree on seems, that, right? Seems pretty basic. The problem is, people don't think about the systematic consequences of what they're saying. Right? A lot of Americans have a hard time with criminal defense lawyers because how can you represent all of these guilty people? Mm -hmm. And they don't think about well, how do you know this person's guilty, and what? is a system of justice going to look like in which someone who we decide is guilty before the trial doesn't get a lawyer, right? I mean, that's not workable systematically, right? I mean, that's, I mean, but again, people don't think about that systematically. The whole actual innocence thing, it's about if we make a, a federal constitutional right, and I'm not sure how you would limit it to the death penalty, a federal constitutional right saying it's unconstitutional to imprison or execute innocent people, right? Don't we have to retry every single state criminal now in federal court? to figure out if they're innocent. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have two criminal trials for every person, first the state trial and then the federal trial to make sure they're actually guilty. It's crazy, right? So that you, it, it's a freestanding federal constitutional claim to factual innocence is systematically impossible. Um, and again, most Americans wouldn't think about it that way because they wouldn't think about how in practice this works out. But even the most you know, wacky liberal can't possibly think that's a good idea, that everyone gets two full trials. So then maybe we limit it to the death penalty. And leaving aside the fact that the question might be why, you know, what's, I mean, I, death may be different, but what's the legal principle on which you're limiting it? Again, do we want to have a second federal trial for every single death row inmate who can claim, make a plausible claim that they didn't do it? So what's your solution to that? I mean, we don't want to be executing uh, innocent people. Right. So what is your answer to that, to, 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 the, to the factually innocent person that's about to get executed? I, what do you what, say to that person? What I would, I think, are, well, I do not think the death penalty is unconstitutional. I think there's a very profound argument to be made that the, the way the death penalty system is implemented in this country, especially in states like Texas where it's profoundly underfunded, I think there are structural problems there. And mm -hmm. I might well say that no, you can't relitigate in federal court, but you do, under the due process clause, have a right to a fair trial. And I might put some teeth into that. Like, you know, it seems simple things. Your lawyer can't be an alcoholic, right? I mean, mm -hmm. which 
Texas apparently doesn't care about. Mm -hmm. Your lawyer has to be awake during the trial. Big issue apparently in several cases. Yes. You know, some these basic things that some states are not willing to do, those I'm perfectly willing to constitutionalize. Indeed, in my opinion, that's what the Bill of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment means. Um, and you know, right to counsel means a right to a competent counsel. And I might say, in fact, I probably would say that what competence means depends on the stakes. So if you're being tried for a misdemeanor shoplifting, a certain kind of lawyer is fine. If you're being tried for your life, you need to have you know, more support and more lawyering. Mm -hmm. um, that the Constitution already does. We're just under enforcing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I would do. You write in your book, uh, the Constitution does nothing to allevi alleviate the effects of poverty since it provides no right to public support or services. Now, I'm sure as you know, there were a series of cases in the 60s mm -hmm. and the 70s, 70s that yeah. flirted mm -hmm. with this idea that the poor had a constitutional right mm -hmm. to some very basic benefits. And I, I, one of the cases that was emblematic of that was uh, Goldberg versus Kelly. Mm -hmm. This was a, a New York gentleman who uh, was on welfare, and the court ruled that those benefits could not be taken away without some sort of due process. Yeah, I'm wondering, and there were other cases, uh, Plyler versus Doe was a, a case about uh, undocumented children and whether or not they could have access to free education. That was actually in 82. Mm -hmm. So there are a string of cases there are. that suggest otherwise, that, uh, that suggest that the poor, you know, it was flirting mm, with this yeah. notion of, you know, that there are constant, that there's, that the, the poor... Uh, the underprivileged uh, have a constitutional right to some very basic benefits. Are, are you, is it your view that those cases are completely wrong? Not only is it my view, it's the court's view. I mean, what's interesting is they may have flirted, but they never consummated, right? I mean, it wasn't um, never, the court dropped a few hints, but then backed off pretty clearly on the idea that there are any basic rights to welfare or education in a couple of Andrews versus Williams okay. and the Sid Rodriguez case. And there's a reason for this. Yeah. And the reason is simply that that's not what judges are good at. Right? That's the choice See, I think there's a different reason why that happened. Mm -hmm. it, 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 the reason why they backed off was because Richard Nixon won the election in 1968. If, if, if <sighs> Hubert Humphrey had won the election, and it was a close election, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, And he got to uh, appoint judges. The legal la landscape uh, undoubtedly would have looked a lot different out, uh, than it than it does. It would have looked different, I think less so than you think. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I think that those kinds, judicial enforcement of those kinds of positive rights is an intrusion into democracy at a level that just, you know, first of all, I think the constitutional argument is extraordinarily weak for welfare rights and education rights in the Constitution. I just think that you know, there's no historical grounds for it, there's no text textual grounds for it. It's based on pure moral reasoning, to my view. Mm -hmm. Second, so you order the government to fund welfare, right? How much welfare? All right, you say you gotta give people X number of dollars a month. Great, does that mean we have to raise taxes? Or what should we cut funding? You know, that kind of micromanagement by the courts of the government is very problematic. I mean, it's just not, Again, we're talking about sort of who gets to make these choices. And I, to my mind, the answer has to be the people of the United States and the people of the individual states, right? California chooses to have relatively generous welfare compared to you know, some other states. Well, okay, take, that's edu take education. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have a right to an education, right. but that's perhaps as close to a constitutional right without actually being one that we, we've got. And we've got the Plyler decision, but, which says that undocumented children have a right to free education, and that, that case was never overturned. Was no, it? it wasn't, but Plyler is a case about discrimination. See, I think, again, it's about how you, Plyler's a hard case, by the way, because undocumented aliens, I don't, I have complex feelings about mm -hmm. sort of how you fit them in with the constitutional structure. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a case about discrimination. And um, the, the reality is, is, is that it, it is certainly constitutionally relevant that when the government starts handing out goodies, it start, doesn't disempower particular groups because that's a way of really undermining mm -hmm. democracy, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, we're just not going to do public education, right? <laughs> California kind of gradually sliding in that direction. Um, it's another thing to say, we're going to do public education, but only white people get public education, mm -hmm. right? Or white people get a better public education, which effectively is what was going on in the South. 
Mm -hmm. um, that's very problematic because then you're, you know, this is, education is unquestionably an important skill in citizenship and you're playing favorites, right? You have a group of basically white voters saying we get to continue to be in charge and we're going to disempower others. Mm -hmm. um, that's what's going on in Plyler. Um, you know, I mean, if, if, if Texas decided to shut down its public school system tomorrow, it would never do that. But if it did, I don't think that raises a federal constitutional question. Now, most state constitutions oblige state governments to provide public education. Mm -hmm. So that's a separate matter. Mm -hmm. Cass Sunstein, in, in his book about, uh, he called it, the, it was, the name of it was the Second Bill of mm -hmm. Rights. Yeah. He talked about Franklin Roosevelt's right. uh, 1944 inauguration speech in which Roosevelt articulated a Second Bill of Rights, positive rights. Mm -hmm. yeah. But he, he uh, uh, Sunstein defends those cases, and he defends those cases by arguing that the Bill of Rights is not merely about limiting government. It's also about protecting citizenship, and that in his, that in his mind... Uh, open up, opens up an avenue of attack yeah. for uh, those per, who are trying to protect the poor right. and trying to give them some constitutional rights. I, is that an implausible argument in your mind? Um, it's not implausible, but it's, it, it's about how you, you perceive the Constitution, right? I mean, Gas Sunstein has a lot more faith in the government than I do. Uh -huh. um, and this is, he was actually my con law professor, so I mean, mm -hmm. I know his views well. Yeah. Um, and he just has a lot more faith in the government, and so he sees the Constitution as empowering, <laughs> even obligating the government to act. My view on that is, is, is that those may be good policies. Indeed, I think they are good policies. Yeah. But I don't think the Constitution speaks to them. And, you know, Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights, he wasn't talking about constitutionalizing that right. stuff. He was talking about doing it through legislation. Right. And we, to some extent, we have. That's what the Great Society was all about, right? Is, is we do have food stamps. So we do have AFTC. We may not have, you know, enough, but we, we have moved in that direction as simply through the democratic process. Yeah. Well, here's the argument for constitutionalizing it, as I understand it, and that is that uh, poverty not only carries with it a badge of inferiority, mm -hmm. But it also makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to effectively participate in the democratic process. Yes. Yes. I mean, if, if I'm starving, yeah. if I'm illiterate, yeah. if I'm homeless, yeah. those are as meaningful barriers to me participating in the democratic process as, say, a poll tax. So extreme poverty does distort the democratic process. Yeah. And so, therefore, judges have an obligation to minimize that distortion. Is, yeah. that, is that crazy talk? That is not crazy talk, though I think people overestimate. I mean, if you think about it, India has a pretty vibrant democracy, and yet it's full of incredibly poor people who do participate yeah. in okay. the democratic process. So, the, I mean, I think some of our assumptions are based on a sort of our sort of level of wealth. They're not necessarily true. I mean, poverty and, and political active, activity are not irreconcilable. Um, no, but but yeah. it makes it harder, certainly, then the institutional question becomes, are judges, first of all, is this the legal question of, does the Constitution really authorize judges to make people into citizens? And I don't think it does. I don't, I don't think the Constitution gives courts that power. But second of all, are judges, do they have any competence to do that job? Right? Do they have any competence to decide what is it that people need to be able to be effective citizens? And again, I don't think they do. Right? I mean, it's important to remember judges are just lawyers, right? They're kind of generally elderly lawyers. But, but if you're saying that you, the court can't get involved in an area out of deference to the democratic system, mm -hmm. but then definable groups are not participating in that system, right. you know, no, no, with that's... any degree of significance, isn't, I mean, it wasn't that the logic behind uh, the Harper versus Virginia yeah, Board of yeah, Education case? Absolutely. That, poll that, that, tax. Absolutely. The, the, the logic behind the reapportionment cases, the poll tax case, absolutely all of the right to vote cases yeah. is that you can't trust a distorted political process. Right. And yeah, it's true. I mean, and it's certainly the, the effective exclusion of lots of poor people from this country from politics, even though they're not legally disenfranchised, biases our political system. Again, and that's unfortunate. Right, and I mean, and I don't. And is the it the more than unfortunate? <laughs> it's, it's very unfortunate, and the constitutional argument that this is a structural flaw in our system is not ridiculous, right? I mean, because the right to vote cases, I think, could be extended slightly further, but I just, I don't. Again, I think it's about institutional competence. 
I just don't think that the judges can do it. Let me go a little further with, with this line of questioning. Uh, there's a new book out called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Oh, I don't know this. Anyway, she makes the case that uh, the war on drugs that we've been fighting yeah. for the last 30 years yeah, yeah, yeah. and this orgy of incarceration yeah. that we've uh, indulged ourselves yeah. with uh, is fundamentally racist, fundamentally unconstitutional on 14th Amendment grounds. And she, she starts with a very simple observation that when people actually study mm -hmm. uh, who uses illegal drugs and who sells illegal drugs, people of all races do so at mm -hmm. remarkably similar rates. Yeah. And yet, you know, the war on drugs was not waged on college campuses. Yeah. It was not waged on white suburbs. It was yeah. waged in inner cities and housing projects. And the stats are rather remarkable. She points out that uh, black men are incarcerated at rates 20 to 50 times higher than white men, that in seven states, 80 to 90 percent of all drug offenders that are sent to prison are blacks. Um, in D.C., three out of four black men can expect to serve time. Yeah. And, of course, it, and it doesn't end with just incarceration. They come out of prison. They're stamped as felons. Right. They, don't have they suffer em employment discrimination. Can't vote. Can't no. Can't vote. Uh, all of that discrimination yep. is legal on, on, on 14th Amendment grounds. Is, is she onto something here? She might be. Um, I don't know the statistics on the war of drugs, mm -hmm. but um, there's nothing, you know, ultimately the decision on whether or not we should criminalize drug tra the drug trade is a policy judgment, right? And th that's for the legislature. But insofar as we are selectively enforcing the drug laws, and I find it totally plausible. I don't know. Right? I don't, this is not my field. Yeah. I don't know the numbers. But is there a good but, 14th Amendment case to be made uh, here? I, I think there is potentially because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, if in fact the police are deliberately targeting minority <laughs> neighborhoods, then yeah, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they say that's where the drugs are. Well, nonsense. The, the, the operative word is deliberately, you know. Well, I mean. but, but <laughs> here's, right. Yeah. But it's nonsense. I mean, I, mean you know, I live in a predominantly white and Asian upper middle class community. I know there are plenty of drugs there. I mean, come yeah. on. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's not, everyone knows that. I grew up, went to high school in such a community, and yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and yet, nobody ever gets busted, right? So mm -hmm. I, there's an argument to be made there, absolutely, that um, what's going on is really problematic. Not an argument that I suspect that this Supreme Court will be very receptive to. No, it won't. It's partly, it's a matter of proof. This is where, again, the courts become limited, is, is that how do you prove, especially given that the war on drugs is such a, diffuse thing, right? It's not like this, we have a general. I mean, we may have a czar, but that czar doesn't really control the, the stuff. How do you prove that people are intentionally targeting particular Well, you have the, you know, these incredible numbers. It's kind of like how do you prove separate but equal is, is, is it is right. idiotic? Isn't it that same kind of challenge? And yeah. wouldn't it require a bold court to, in effect, call a spade a spade? Right. It would. And you're right, in some ways, I mean, the Brown versus Board Court was certainly much bolder than this court. But I think the level of obviousness is a little different. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, first of all, that southern states were discriminating on the basis of race was not in dispute because they created racial discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's remembered, I mean, the, segregation was imposed by law. And, um, the, and the question of why they did that was also obvious. Yeah. Right? Nobody, I mean, southern states themselves, like they would deny that it was white superiority? Of course not, right? I mean, they may deny it in court. but yeah. and So once you accept those first two premises, the end result that this is inherently unequal doesn't strike me as being that hard. War on drugs is different because if you ask people, is the reason we have a war on drugs because we want to incarcerate African Americans? People would say no, yeah. right? And most Americans would say no, it's yeah. because drugs are terrible. And then is the reason why so many... Minorities are imprisoned because they've been selectively enforced. No, it's just the drug trades in the cities. Is that true or not? My guess is not, but those are harder things to yeah. prove. But again, it kind of goes back to the point about you know, the moral distinction between omission and commission. Right. Uh, there is not the overt racist rhetoric yeah. fueling the war on drugs, yeah. but the result is, can be just as devastating, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we do have a black president, yeah. but we've, you know, sort of the system depends on, you know, a few exceptional blacks breaking through to maintain the apparent fairness yeah. of what overall is still an extremely unfair situation. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's, we, I mean, we, we still as a society have a long way to go. Yeah. Um, it's again, it's, 
I doubt if courts are going to be the central institutions in the progress that we need to make from here on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think we should reconsider the war on drugs. I think that it's been catastrophic for this country. It's been catastrophic for other countries like Colombia and Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not, to my mind, doing much good. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm not sure I really think judges should be making that call. Okay. Right? Um, Let me ask you about a couple more cases. We did, uh, in, in, uh, in passing, mention Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talk about the importance of limiting government, that mm -hmm. that's the paradigm here. Uh, it's, it seems to me reasonable that judges uh, would say that uh, uh, government cannot force women against their will uh, into motherhood. What, what's, what's wrong? You, you, you uh, in your book, suggested that that case was decided uh, incorrectly. I have doubts about it. I, mean, yeah, I, don't, so, I don't take a firm position and I still have, right. have a hard time. Okay. Uh, here's the thing. I would not say that it's simply about limiting government. That's too strong. You, what you're describing is a libertarian constitution. I don't think we have a libertarian constitution. I think the constitution is about constraining the ways in which government can undermine democracy and leaving sort of popular sovereignty firmly in place. Mm -hmm. And I think the question of abortion is a deeply difficult moral question. And I think that most deeply difficult moral questions are more suitable for democratic politics because than for judicial fiat. The one issue I have with abortion and with Roe versus Wade is the sex discrimination angle, which is I do think that you know, there's at least a decent argument. Well, men that, don't give birth to babies, right? right? That, that, this, yeah. that, that banning abortion has a pretty systematically disempowering effect on women by forcing them into traditional economic roles, disempowering them from the workplace, you know, on and on and on. And that that's problematic. That insofar as you can see abortion as a sex discrimination issue, which Ruth Bader Ginsburg, among others, has argued we should, yeah. that makes the claim more plausible. But the pure moral claim, you know, you say government should not force women to have babies. Of course it shouldn't. Opponent says government should not permit murder. Of course it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. How do you, you know, I can't reconcile those two things. The question of whether or not abortion constitutes murder is a purely moral judgment that, you know, I, I think not. But if, you know, a devout Catholic comes to me and says, I think so, for some, what am I going to say to them? For some people, the Griswold case uh, touched upon a moral issue. Do you think that that case was, uh, this was a case of contraception? Yeah, again. Uh, is this, should, the, should uh, the court have not decided that case the way it did? Again, I think if you view it in sex discrimination terms, there is a plausible argument to be made that control of contraceptives, like control of abortion, but even more so, in my opinion, because the moral argument in favor of regulation is so much weaker, is mainly about forcing women into traditional economic roles, and then you have a real equal protection argument. But other than that, no, I don't think it's any of the court's business. What about uh, the sodomy case, Lawrence v. Texas, the sodomy case? I mean, another moral question, the court decided yeah, to see, get involved. To my mind, the sodomy case is all about discrimination. So to my mind, at this point, we as a country have come to recognize about time right. that gays and lesbians are a coherent group in our society, <laughs> that ostracizing them from our society is unacceptable. And, um, we, so it sounds to me like whether it's Roe v. Wade or whether it's the Lawrence case mm -hmm. uh, or Griswold, as long as it's phrased as a discrimination issue rather than a privacy issue, mm -hmm. you're okay with it. Yes, but I find so they just Roe v. Picked the, they picked the wrong argument. They did, but in Roe v. Wade, see, I'm not sure the argument works. I, mm -hmm. I think Lawrence is clearly correct because I think it clearly Texas astronomy law was all about homosexuality, right? right? It's one of the obvious things, little known fact. Historically, sodomy law had nothing to do with sexual orientation or the gender of um, participants. Mm -hmm. Sodomy was not sex between people of the same gender. Mm -hmm. It was until the 1970s and back into the Middle Ages, sodomy was defined essentially as all non-procreative sex. between doesn't matter what the gender of the people. Oral sex between husband and wife, sodomy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm guessing the state of Texas was not willing to enforce that law. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So then what are they trying to do? And it's, they're just, you know, it's not really the sexual act that they object to because they're perfectly happy to let, you know, heterosexual people do whatever they want. Right. They were singling out a group of people. Roe is harder because, um, and Griswold is harder because while regulating abortion and regulating contraceptives does have this impact on women, I am not sure I am comfortable saying that the reason 
people oppose, oppose abortion in particular is because they want to make, keep women in their traditional roles. There's enough overlap between anti-abortion people and sort of more traditional sort of family values kind of people that maybe that's true. But mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who oppose abortion because they think it's killing, not because they want to harm women. Mm -hmm. And as long as that's plausible, I have a hard time. Well, yeah, sure. Although, I, and I'm sure people feel that way. On the other hand, you don't hear a lot of people objecting on moral grounds to uh, in vitro fertilization, which results in the death of thousands of embryos yeah. every year. No, it's true. Well, I mean, the, the, the truly religious people, the Catholic Church, you know, does. Yeah, right. Um, but there's not this political movement. No, I mean, there, there is There not. seems to be a certain inconsistency there. There might be, and that maybe are, again, this is a, it's a really empirical question to my mind. Um, okay, I'll just, the siren. It'll give the uh, the whole show a, a more gritty feel. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, you may be right. I mean, it is true that in vitro fertilization, in principle, should be as troubling to people. But here's the thing about abortion, is, is that while the numbers are shifting, historically, most Americans have not had an issue with very early term abortions. And in vitro is really the equivalent of that, mm -hmm. right? which it's as the fetus sort of develops and becomes more and more human in appearance mm -hmm. that an issue arises. And in vitro fertilization, we're talking about the disposal of a single fertilized egg, right? Or a handful of cells. Well, like 20 per procedure. Right. And, and so that adds up to hundreds of thousands of, right. of embryos being disposed of absolutely. every year. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think for a lot of people, there's a big difference between that and a three month term fetus, right? Yeah, well, um, then it becomes a question where you draw the line. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let me ask you about another case, uh, uh, Citizens United. Mm -hmm. uh, judging that that decision came out, I presume, after your book was yes, published. Yes, but, but came judging, out simultaneously. Judging from what you've uh, written about uh, Buckley v. Vallejo, mm -hmm. uh, these are the campaign finance reform cases, yep. um, I would imagine that... Uh, you do not share the view of those who see that Citizens United case as an abomination. <laughs> um, I think it is A, correctly decided, and B, very problematic. Uh -huh. um, it's a tough one for me, because I think that my, my position has to be, do I trust the government to decide who gets to speak during an election? No, right? No. That's you know, all of the powers I would trust a government to have. I think Justice Scalia was dead on in saying, really? I mean. What are the incentives of members of Congress in that respect? Is it not likely to be to silence people who are most likely to attack incumbents? Doesn't silencing voices essentially help incumbents? Yes. All of those things are true. On the other hand, I think the influence of corporate money is problematic, and I think we're going to have to deal with that. But, I, so how, yeah, how but as a matter of constitutional law, I think that um, it's clearly correct. I think the solution may be in corporate law. I think it may be that, that maybe before... Corporations can spend corporate money on um, political causes. They need to take a shareholder vote. Mm. That's, you know, I mean, that would be a pretty effective solution and one that keeps their right, right? That as a joint entity, they can still spend, but not, does not allow um, corporate officers to spend someone else's money, which is effectively what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that may be a better solution. But I don't think, I think that excluding corporations and unions from the political process um, to my mind. I mean, have we suffered from that? I mean, has there been a problem with corporations not having enough influence in this uh, political system? No, but uh, so it may know, be. But I mean, I've we, often heard it said that the, that, that, that the court, the law cannot address all wrongs. Right. I was never aware that, you know, the, 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 the corporate powerlessness in our political system uh, was a huge wrong that's cried out for correction. It's not. Um, the problem so why did the court need to go out of its way to address it? The problem that does is crying out for correction is incumbency. Um, we, our political system is fundamentally broken at the federal level because in most years, this year may be different, but in most years, incumbents essentially skate to victory. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ways they do that is because they have far greater fundraising ability and they can plaster the TV with commercials. We're running, having an election right now in California. We're seeing that. And these laws have silenced the people who are most likely to speak out against them. Well, right? do, because, I mean, you and I can't afford to pay 
Right, you and I, yeah. but are corporations going to be so much less inclined to fund incumbents who are perfectly willing to do their bidding? Well, this is the problem, of course, is, is that, that what ha this will be just another weapon corporations can use to get incumbents to do their bidding. Um, and that's not great. Right? No. That's, that's problematic. Yeah. Um, but so I don't know what the impact of this law is going to be. The interesting question is, is it going to end up simply becoming making incumbents more sort of supine to corporate interests? Or Why it wouldn't it? <laughs> because, well, why wouldn't it? Maybe, maybe that's what it'll do. I mean, yeah. part of it is, is, is that if, in fact, an incumbent is able to publicly say, you know, Goldman Sachs came to me and said, if you don't vote no on the financial reform legislation, we're going to plaster the airwaves against you. And they said, and I said no. That's a pretty effective antidote to Goldman Sachs' advertising campaign. Mm -hmm. um, indeed, maybe, you know, because I fully believe in disclosure laws. So if Goldman Sachs, if they're going to fund them, picking Clarence them, Thomas doesn't, by the way. <laughs> Clarence <laughs> Thomas was alone on that. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason for that. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. eight justices agreed the disclosure was yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, th I think that that is probably a better solution. And again, you know, it's about trust. It's about do you trust the government to decide who gets to speak during elections and what gets to be said? The answer is no. Yeah. Right? I just don't. Let me ask you a last question. Uh, Justice Roberts now is famous, perhaps infamous, for the comment he made during, the during his confirmation hearing that he's in the business of calling strikes and balls. Yep. Uh, the Roberts Court, some would argue now, is a very activist court. Yes. Whether it's we're talking about uh, the ability of corporations to finance campaigns, whether we're talking about overturning gun control laws yep. or overturning the efforts of uh, communities to maintain diverse schools. Yep. No, absolutely. Uh, we have so, a, a conservative Warren Court. So you think um, this is, an, would you call this an inappropriately activist court? Yes, absolutely. Um, as you know, I agree with Citizens United, um, so mm -hmm. I don't think they're always wrong. Mm -hmm. but, um, but yes, I, I think it is an inappropriately activist court at this moment. All right. Well, Ash, thank you so much. Absolutely. The time thank flew. You. Thanks. It's great. Great interview. Uh, the book is The Myth of Rights, and you need to buy it. It's a great book. Amazon.com. Amazon.com. All right.